Okay, looks like it's working. We were dealing with some YouTube glitches, but here we are. This is the uh, 20 questions with Pastor Mike. I'm here to try to answer your questions about the Bible, Christianity, and I know the first question's a little out of the box for us typically. This is from Matthew Benavidez, who says, when can we get a bookshelf tour? Well, difficult to give you a bookshelf tour under normal conditions because, well, uh, I can't just pick that camera up and this mic up and move it around. It doesn't work that way. So I recorded a video of a bookshelf tour. Um, I'm only doing this because I get so many questions about this throughout the years that we want a resource. We can just say, hey, here you go. And it will give you a partial tour of, of our my mini bookshelves, uh, well, several bookshelves, and um, answer some myths, some myths about my bookshelves that I've seen in the comments and that you might be believing yourself. So you might want to know about this. Anyway, here's the bookshelf tour. This will take about nine minutes, 40 seconds for anybody who wants to just skip ahead to question number two. You're welcome to do that. So I've been asked many times, many times over the years to provide something of a bookshelf tour. And I'm gonna be doing that today, sort of a quick, very short, partial tour, um, and answering four myths about this bookshelf of mine. The first myth is, uh, believe it or not, uh, there are many people out there who think that my books are actually blue, because that's how they appear on screen. Um, they're not blue, uh, <laughs> the books are just, there's just LED strips that I've put into my bookshelf. Glue them in real cheap ones actually and don't ask me which kind because they no longer sell them on amazon at any rate let me start with these two bookshelves and then i'll get to the next little myth um i will not be able to cover every book in here obviously or talk about them and there's a lot of stuff that's pretty random with the bookshelves for instance uh this book on hallucinations is just for resurrection of jesus studies it's just a textbook basically on the nature of hallucinations to demonstrate um, there is no legitimate scientific foundation for the idea that the disciples hallucinated Jesus in group settings. Um, we've got things like, you know, Hebrews stuff. This is preparation for what I'm doing next year. Going to be teaching through Hebrews. Let's see here. Um, one book I'm really excited to get to read. I've only glanced at sections of it so far is Beckwith's The Old Testament Canon on, in, uh, of the New Testament Church. I think that's going to be super interesting, deep historical research stuff there. You know, this bookshelf, there's there's things I agree with and things I don't agree with that are across any of these books. In fact, it's the thing that makes me hesitant to recommend books is people thinking that by pointing at something and saying, hey, here's a, a resource that it means I agree with every aspect of it. But there are plenty of things that are great. You know, um, uh, When Skeptics Ask by Norm Geisler or When Critics Ask, also same author and how. That's a fantastic resource for digging up specific sections of scripture where you've got like, say, when critics ask, you know, if someone has a, a challenging question about, say, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is God going to destroy the body? Then how can it be resurrected? Um, all these sort of critical questions about supposed contradictions, things like that. This is a great resource where you just find exactly what you're looking for. Um, Encyclopedia Bible Difficulties by Archer is also, uh, both of these are older and some of them like this one and this one go under new names now. I don't know the names off the top of my head, but here we go. Let's see. I've got some stuff that's conflicting. You know, I have William Lane Craig's book in quest of the historical Adam right alongside answers in Genesis. And here's, you know, really, really strong young earth creationist perspective and a, a really strong old earth creationist uh, perspective. Um, so yeah. I think that there's going to be even conflict. exactly what you're looking for. Um, Encyclopedia Bible Difficulties by Archer is also, uh, both of these are older and some of them like this one and this one go under new names now. I don't know the names off the top of my head, but here we go. Let's see. I've got some stuff that's conflicting. You know, I have William Lane Craig's book in quest of the historical Adam right alongside answers in Genesis. 
And here's, you know, really, really strong young earth creationist perspective and a, a really strong old earth creationist uh, perspective. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's going to be even conflicts amongst the books that are on, the, on my shelves. And I don't necessarily think everybody has to dig into this kind of stuff on their own, but I do. Let's see, we've got The Miracles Resources by Craig Keener. I think he offers a really valuable, valuable resource here, starting with philosophical foundations for why miracles should be believed as possible, and then accounts of miracles with various testimonies and records to demonstrate that they actually happened. Pretty cool stuff when you think about it. Uh, Ready Defense, this is a book I used to give out to the youth years ago. I would give them this book as a, a resource for answering tons of objections and challenges to Christianity, especially as they headed into college into that environment. Uh, there's all kinds of different books I've got here. They used to be better organized, but I actually had to get rid of some and move them around and disorganize them somewhat because the shinier they are, the more it causes a problem for the camera, which is back behind me. So we've got, let's see here, um, a really fantastic resource in my opinion. Not that I agree with everything in it. Commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament by Beale and Carson. Look up a New Testament passage that references or alludes to the Old Testament. And there's several very thoughtful words about what they think is going on there. This also helps answer a lot of challenges about how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. It's commonly stated wrongly that they're actually misusing the Old Testament scripture. And that's one resource I think is useful, even though you're, you'll find stuff in there I probably don't agree with. And you probably don't agree with, you know, kitchens, uh, this is like, I think this publication is about 20 years old now and archaeology is always changing, but this is a really cool resource on the reliability of the old Testament. You can see I have a lot of apologetic stuff in here and I do end up using a lot of that and trying to incorporate that into a lot of what I'm doing. I also have a lot of other stuff on theology as well. Um, which I guess I just kind of skipped over here. Some systematic theology type stuff, uh, stuff on the Trinity. I like James White's book on the Trinity. Uh, all sorts of different things here. These aren't all books that I like. I guess that's going to be myth number... Yeah, myth number two. <laughs> myth number two is to say that my bookshelf is not actually safe. The books that you're looking at are not necessarily all safe. And as I move forward in the bookshelf, I get to various things like the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Sources of Catholic Dogma, uh, Rat, you know, Ratzinger, for, uh, former Pope, his book on eschatology, uh, death and eternal life. Like this is not stuff I would recommend. You know, here's Vatican too. Like there's a bunch of sort of, you know, Roman Catholic largely related stuff on this shelf. Then we've got, as you go down further, um, I wrote this like probably 20 years ago in this thing, bad translation. I, I was warning someone who might find this in my library. Well, at this point, I've got so many weird books in here. There's so many trippy and, and even cult books in here that I just cannot recommend people randomly go to my library. I remember when I was young, I, I went to my, my pastor's library and I, I said to him, uh, hey, I was looking through your library and I, I just knew that whatever book I grabbed, I could trust. And that's just not the case. <laughs> he started laughing. Now I understand why he laughed. Yeah, that's just the way it is. So you can see tons of books down here, some commentaries, you know, First Corinthians, Revelation and stuff like that. Um, but a lot of my commentary books are in other places, which leads me to myth number three. Okay, so myth myth number three is that all my books are on the two bookshelves behind me. Um, the, here's three of our other bookshelves in a different room we've got. I, there's obviously no way I could just sit here and go over all these books. It's just not going to happen. Um, 
but you know, I've, I've had to move things around a lot. There's a lot more commentaries and stuff out here, more theological stuff out here as well. Uh, the nature of Christ, uh, like I've even got Calvinists. You'd be happy. I have those, but you'd be unhappy to know that I have not read through them all. <laughs> um, let's see Jesus and the eyewitnesses. There's a more apologetics book. Um, I've, there's, there's the passion translation. I recently moved it out here instead of sitting within arm's reach where I'm tempted to, uh, relocate it to the garbage bin. So, so I've got, you know, there you go. Here's like sort of a bookshelf tour. There's actually another bookshelf in another room, which I, uh, I won't try to videotape every room of my house. When I, when I do this, we have a total of, I guess, seven bookshelves that leads me to the next section. So the next thing would just be the books that I keep right on my desk. And these are more books that are like things I'm currently looking at. If you can see the books that are all sort of on this side of the uh, screen here, this is pretty much all women in ministry related stuff. And then there's just other things for whatever reason I decided to keep closer to me. Maybe as a reminder, you know, that one day I want to get into that book and read it or perhaps for some other purpose. Um, like George Winham's, John Winham's uh, Christ in the Bible. I'm really looking forward to getting in, getting to dig deep into that. I got that a few months ago and it's just been sitting there waiting on me. Which leads me to the final myth. When the final myth is that I've actually read all these books, which is not true. I mean, I've some of these books are resources like Meek's The First Urban Christians. I've read, you know, sections of this that relate to the women of ministry debate. You know, um, that sort of thing. You know, I've read the majority of Discovering Biblical Equality. There's a few chapters in it that I think were not relevant for my research. Um, so it just depends, you know, as you look around at these books, you're not seeing what's safe. You're not seeing everything that I've read. <laughs> that's for sure. And you're not remotely seeing all my books. If, if I added to the list what's on Kindle, let's see, I've got about 190 books on Kindle because I always try to get it on Kindle. If I add to that list what's on Lagos software, then I've got, oh dear. Uh, a lot more. So I hope this answers the question. It's, I, I would never devote all this time to the bookshelf, except that we've received so many questions over the years about my bookshelf. I think people think that if they maybe just saw all the books that I've got, that they would be able to like duplicate some of that. And I'm just saying it, it's just not that easy. And anytime I make a recommendation, right? Like for instance, I don't recommend you duplicate the history of Phoenicia by, by Rollins. That's probably not the most important thing for you. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the thing is, I, even when I'm ma making a recommendation and I go, oh, um, oh, I, I recommend, you know, you know, Kinder's book on miracles. Does that, does that mean that in every account that he gives, I think that was a great solid account of him? No, it doesn't. I, I just am trying to provide resources that I think will provide more benefit to people than something else they might read. So I'm, I'm slow to recommend books because of that reason. Every time I, I make a recommendation, I get emails from people. Did you know there's this one thing in that book I disagree with? And I'm like, that's fine. There's probably things I disagree with too. So that being said, I hope that answers your guys' questions about the bookshelf. Let's get on to the next question for today. Okay, well, there you go. There's, there's, there's a sort of a bookshelf tour. There's two bookshelves I didn't show you guys just because I, I was like, this video is too long. Uh, one is just other random books, a lot of commentaries and stuff like that. And the other one is actually books that are like fantasy books and fun books that me or a lot of them, my wife, uh, we both would read. I, I don't usually get to read those anymore nowadays, not for a few years, but used to for fun. And uh, maybe I will over over this Christmas season a little bit. At any rate, um, let's go to question number two. And that question is coming in from an anonymous source says, my church requires all employees to give to the church in general 
any amount is fine. They pulled me aside and asked to ask why I haven't been giving. And when I told them I was, but that I felt better giving anonymously in the offering plate, rather than having a record attached to my name, they told me it needed to be tracked. Am I wrong for feeling weird about this or are they? Um, you're, it's, you're not wrong for feeling weird about it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, let me let me tell you a story, if I can, from my own experience where I, I went through something similar. And it was, um, you know, me and my wife would give to, you know, to our own church. Even when I was on staff at the church, we, we would give. And what yet we gave online, right? We gave, it was just much easier to just give online. And there's none of that scrambling, you know, as they're passing the plate. So for us, the convenience of it was, oh, this is much easier. But somebody in the ministry, a person, another person on staff noticed that I wasn't like putting my hand out into the offering basket as it was passed around. And this they thought was not a good example to others. And so they came up to me and were like, you know, you should probably give. And I was like, well, we do give, we give, you know, we definitely give. And, um, and, and he suggested that I just give even a dollar every time that that offering plate went around. And to me, this was like a real challenge because I respect the person and I don't want the conflict of this awkwardness. And I don't want people to be thinking that, oh, because Mike's in ministry, he feels like he doesn't doesn't need to be supporting, you know, things. And um, but all that to say, the only reason I could think to give in that situation is for the appearance of it. And this seemed like a direct violation of scripture. Um, Now, I don't think that this person wanted me to look puffed up. They wanted me to give in order for it to inspire others to give or to maybe to protect my reputation. One of those two reasons. And I, but you know, here's the scripture that comes to your mind and my mind on this. It's Matthew six, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That is, this is a two part thing. You're, You're practicing your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. That's the goal. I'm doing it so people will know I do it. For then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. One might say, record no video to put on social media that you might be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you're giving maybe in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. May I just add real quick, this is not about tithing and giving to churches directly. It's about giving to the needy. Now, if the church has a significant portion of its income uh, of, of the tithing and of the, I, I use the word tithing colloquially here, right? Of the giving, uh, if a significant amount of the giving, the gift giving that people have for the church, if that goes to the needy, if they're feeding the poor, then you can, then it qualifies as feeding the poor. Um, but the direct application was just, just feeding the poor here. So, um, I never did it actually. And, and it, and it was awkward and I I don't know how that person felt about it. They were, they seem, you know, anyway, the point is I understand the awkwardness of it. I would add another element of complexity to your question. Um, cause I'm just like, I don't want to give just so people see me giving. It's true though, that some churches will actually track their membership based upon, um, the, the roles of who gives, like they don't have official lists of members other than the list of people who give on a, on a regular basis. They are the members legally speaking, and they're, they're required to have a member list as part of the whole f- church 501c3 stuff. If that's the case, you could always 
um, officially give like $1. It doesn't even have to be in an offering plate. It could just be like even electronically, but you give $1. Then the amount is still anonymous. Nobody knows how much you give and you're not giving the dollar to be seen. You're giving the, the dollar to help enable the church to track their membership, if that's the reason. But I just want to say, um, this seems like a, a, a strange requirement to put on people on staff. Um, although it doesn't mean it's unhealthy to do it. It seems like a good thing to, to do, but you know, ha, you know, giving to your own fellowship is something you should be doing, but it just seems like a little bit of a weird thing that they have to track it. I agree with you, it's weird. I agree with you, it's odd. I want to be gracious to the church and ask if they have an, another motive that I don't know about, maybe you're not aware of, where they're like, hey, you know, we, we, uh, we need to keep our tax-exempt status, which is, I think, a positive thing for churches to have tax-exempt status as long as it doesn't come with strings that, that forbid the church from preaching truth of Scripture, right? Un unless that happens. It means that they, honestly, what it usually means is the church can survive off less finances and they actually pay their ministers less because of tax status issues. Uh, pastors make less money so that because they don't pay as much taxes, depending on where you live, and um, and that way the church saves money. It's not even making anybody rich. It's just stretching the dollar further. Um, anyhow, there's some complexity for you. I agree with you. It seems a little strange to be required so that it could be tracked. Um, I don't agree with that, but I wouldn't separate yourself from the whole church as a result. I would just say, hey, for, for me, I'm not going to violate my conscience and if that means that you can't give at all because you feel like it's a true violation of your conscience, if that give $1 secretly online, if, if even that would violate your conscience, because no one's going to think highly of you for a dollar, um, then, uh, then I still think you should just honor your conscience and ask your church to understand it and then deal with the consequences. But hopefully that's a solution that you find useful. Those are my thoughts on that. Number three, Marcus Ugadal says, does John 2023... And Matthew 6.14 indicate that absolution, the act of forgiving someone for having done something wrong or sinful, is biblical. God bless. Okay. Um, well, there's absolution in the sense in the sense of just forgiving people. Like, should we forgive people? And the answer is going to be a big, big, huge yes. Is forgiveness biblical? Yes. But if you're asking, what about, say, um, say in the Roman Catholic Church, the, the specific format of forgiveness that's there, where you have um, a, a priest you go to and you say you confess a sin and they absolve you, they give you absolution for your sins and they give you an instruction like perhaps say five Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys or do whatever other practice um, and then they, you know, they forgive you and theologically there's a lot more going on than just sort of a free forgiveness. There's many more details here. So what they believe is this treasury of merit, this sort of like, imagine a spiritual bank and inside this bank, there's a massive vault and the Catholic church, they, they store in this big vault, all the good works of Jesus, Mary and the apostles and all the saints, specifically saints, not just everybody's good works, but saints, including Mary and Jesus, the apostles, all of them, all of their good works, including the death and resurrection of Christ, everything. And it's all, it's all in there. It's all connected. And what they'll do is that they, they, certain people have the keys, have the authorization to sort of open that vault and apply some of those good works to the situation you're in. That's why you got to go to a priest. Okay. It's why you do go to a priest. Now they'll say there's, there's, there's normal ways of getting grace and there's sort of extraordinary ways of getting grace and it'll get super complicated. But the typical way is I go to a priest, he's got, you know, the church has the keys, the keys. 
I'm, I'm making things very simplistic here because Catholic teaching is very complicated. Um, but effectively, the keys, one of the things that they do is they open up this sort of vault, bank vault, spiritual bank vault, by way of analogy, and then they give you the grace to absolve you of that sin. So if we're asking, do, do these scriptures give that kind of theology? Well, now we're asking for a whole lot of scripture, right? So let's look at John 20, verse 23. Does it give that kind of theology? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay. That, does that give us um, keys and a treasury of merit? The method of forgiveness is through the through these works of not only Jesus, but also Mary and the saints. Does it give you um, the, the people who are going to do the forgiving, the, the modern priest? So it doesn't really give you succession to like sort of key holders and, and forgiveness conduits today, mediators. Right? The Roman Catholic Church is full of lots of mediators for grace. It doesn't really give you a lot of that. If we look at what Jesus is saying in more context, he says, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Who's he sending? He's This is death, resurrection, and now Jesus is sending the disciples out. Right? This is at the end of the gospels where Jesus sends them out. He wants them to go out and preach the gospel, the message of Jesus's forgiveness to all people. That's an authoritative message for sure. Okay. It is authoritative. Then he breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit, and then tells them if they forgive, people will be forgiven. If they don't, people won't be forgiven. This is a commission to go out and with authority proclaim the gospel of Christ. Hey, come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and you'll be forgiven. Don't believe in Jesus, you won't be forgiven. It's not a, um, a ongoing situation of getting absolution by going to like modern day priests and having the whole trip. It's just adding a whole bunch of extra theological baggage that developed slowly over time to this passage of scripture that just doesn't exist. Now, if you want to see how this plays out, you could go to the book of Acts and you can see what they do. They just go out and tell everybody about the grace of Christ. If they believe it, they're just saved. And then they, and then anybody who gets saved, they just stand in that grace. We don't have the sort of procedures and official absolution stuff that we have going on with modern uh, Roman Catholicism. So yeah, if they forgive the sins of any, meaning they proclaim forgiveness through the grace of Christ, guess what? Those people are really forgiven. If they withhold forgiveness by doing what? By saying, hey, as long as you reject Jesus, you stand under God's judgment, then that, then that's a reality too. They're getting the authority to preach the gospel. I get I get to do that too. You get to do that too if you come alongside the apostles and just echo the message of the gospel. This isn't limited to priests in that sense. The next thing, um, I mean, there were no priests. So the next thing you asked about was Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is very different. This is not about you proclaiming forgiveness between them and God. It's about you personally forgiving people. Um, in other words, whether, so like, let's say you sin against me and I choose to never forgive you. You can be forgiven by God. You can, you can be totally wiped of your sins and still enter into his presence, but I may hold a grudge. That's what this is talking about is that personal grudge, not the divine forgiveness, but the human forgiveness. And it's a huge deal to Jesus, but it has nothing to do with, um, absolution in that sense. It's about interpersonal human relationships, that sort of vertical or horizontal relationship, not the vertical one. That, that would be my interpretation of that verse. We're just taking it out of context to apply it to 
the absolution question. Number 14, question 14, 14, just four, just four. Question four, Carlia says, do you have some insight about Revelation 2.17, specifically about the implication of new names in heaven? Well, let's look at the passage together. Revelation 2.17. And I'm going to back up and read the whole letter um, to the church. This is the church in Pergamum. So in this section in the book of Revelation, Jesus has, he has John write seven letters to seven different churches. And each church has different issues. Jesus acknowledges them. He might encourage them. He might confront them. He'll deal with their issues. And he also will offer these sort of symbolic meanings, descriptions of himself, and sort of these these prophetic statements about the future. And so that's what he's talking about, the names. But let's, let's go on, especially promises for people who overcome, who will listen to him and overcome. So, into the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Pergamum has held fast amongst an evil place that persecutes Christians, even when one of the believers was martyred. But I have a few things against you. So he's got some challenges for them. You have some, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and people will spend the rest of time debating who the Nicolaitans were and all that. Therefore, repent. If not, if they don't repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And people will point out that he's going to come to you, meaning the church at Pergamum, but he's going to war against them, that is, whoever is doing the wicked things he's rebuking earlier, these bad doctrines. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, um, insights into the whole idea of a new name. Um, I wonder what cross-references are suggested here. You can't you can see that on your screen. Great. Um, so, Revelation 3.12 has a, has a, a related verse. Uh the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 62, 2. Uh, the nation shall see your righteousness and all your king, all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Isaiah 65, 15. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord will, God will put you to, put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. In scripture, in multi, in uh, many times when we see new names given to people, it seems like those new names are about being given sort of a new identity. And the new identity has sort of like a couple elements that it seems to me are consistent. One of them is the new identity is a claim. Uh, it, it's a, you know, the one who gives you the new name is sort of claiming you for themselves in a sense. That's significant. You know, when, when God renamed Jacob, to Israel, there was something of a, of a, a promise in that naming that was given there. Um, and the, um, the idea of a new name is also, so it's not only is it a claim, the second element is like the idea of kind of a new identity, a new experience, a new elevated life that's coming in the new name. So these are the things that I would see in Revelation is 
you're going to be getting, and there's, there's a secret element we'll talk about in a second, but a new name and that that is going to be something that is God saying, I will be yours. You will be mine. There'll be this personal connection and relationship. And there's also a newness in who you are. You know, in the resurrection, we get new bodies and we get a new experience. Like we, we no longer are tempted with sin. Imagine this. You're no longer tempted with sin. This isn't just, we often think of heaven or of the new creation, heaven and earth that they meet, that it's just me in a better environment, but it's also a better me, right? Like all this flesh and carnality and sinful desires are gone. And now I walk in righteousness and holiness and I'm as pure as the new creation is. Okay, it says it's telling me we're back, so I'm going to assume that that's true. Um, so there's the two elements of uh, uh, identity and claim that are there, but there's also these hidden elements. Okay, so the hidden manna, and then the white stone has a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And I'm not, I'm not really sure what what I do with that. Um, I could just guess at you, but I, but I, I think there's an element there that I'm recognizing, and that I would want to pursue more. And it's been a long time since I've looked at the passage, so it's not on the top of my head. But there's a few thoughts for you. Let's go to number five. Alexis says, would you would changing our appearance in any way be a sin since God has created us in his image? For example, if we wear makeup, it's covering our natural beauty. And if we shave our body, is that destroying the beauty God has given us? Um, well, we we can we can say for sure that this is not the case. Um, um, but there's also let me. Let me think of some, try to think of some biblical examples that would show us why this is definitely not the case. Um, the Israelites were forbidden from trimming, shaving the sides of their, their sideburns, basically. That was part of the rules that were given. Um, if all shaving was wrong, this would not be the case. There would be no statement about you can't shave this portion, you can't cut this portion off. Now, they didn't grow them all along, they just didn't cut them completely off. Um, there is also in the scripture in the Old Testament, there's a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is you, you can't shave or cut your hair. What's the purpose of a vow that you can't shave or cut your hair if shaving, cutting your hair is always wrong? Um, in addition, at the end of the Nazarite vow, they're specifically told they have to shave and cut their hair at the end of the vow. That's part of the procedure of ending the vow is they cut their hair all off. Paul did this in the book of Acts. Maybe it was a Nazarite type vow he took, but he cuts his hair because of some vow. And so obviously this is part of something God's approving of. This couldn't be something that's that's evil and wrong. Scripture does talk about makeup and things like that, but not that it's inherently wrong, but that it can be wrong. It's one of those things like much of life, like food is inherently good. It's, it's wonderful, but it can be overused and become a sin. Um, alcohol is inherently a nice and good quality thing, but it can be used in a way that creates sin easily. And frequently this happens. And so I think hair, makeup, hairstyle, this sort of thing is the same way. But then we have things like um, God talking about how he blessed Israel. And one of the things he did with Israel is he bathed Israel. <laughs> Not literally, but it's figurative. This language of how he found her and he bathed her, he cleansed her. That, that would imply that taking care of yourself is a, is a positive thing. I know nobody thought you'd have to use that scripture. I think it's in Ezekiel. Um, other ones are like the Song of Solomon, which talks about perfume and it's a romantic statement between a man and a woman, and it discusses things like perfume in a positive aspect. So perfuming would, would not seem to be horrible and negative in, an, in and of itself. Finally, I'll just say this, like when we're made in God's image, the emphasis in scripture is not on our physical appearance. 
that's not what is described. For one thing, the problem with thinking that uh, being made in God's image means we physically look like God is, well, there's several problems with it. For one, you would have literally some people on earth who look more like God than others. Would that mean they're more in the image of God than others? If it would, here, that, That's only a mild problem. Here's a bigger problem. God then must be humanoid. But he's not. He's not a man. He's not human. In fact, God had to become incarnate. He had to take on human form because he did not have human form. He took on our image, our likeness, the likeness of man, Philippians 2, so that he could die in our place representing all of us. But he he took on our, our physical likeness, but he didn't give us his physical likeness or else he could be, he'd be taking on his own like It wouldn't make any sense. Um, and it would be very much against... Uh, every reasonably reasonably Christian branch of Christianity to suggest that God is has these physical attributes like humans do. You know, when Solomon built the temple, he prayed over it and stuff, and he acknowledged, as he built it, to, to avoid bad theology, he acknowledges, God, no temple could contain you. You can't be fit into any small location because the heaven of heavens cannot contain you because God is what well, he is spirit. You know, he's uncontainable. Um, Anyway, that's an important theological perspective to have, and we should keep that in mind. How are we made in God's image? There's a huge debate on that. Um, this could refer to our intellectual capacity. It could refer to the fact that we have a spirit, and we have a unique kind of spirit that animals maybe don't have, and that our spirit can be joined with God in relationship, and that might be what it means to be made in God's image. And some people suggest it's just a reference to our, our calling. Being in God's image is like being given a occupation, a job take dominion over the earth. Um, and I, I, there may be an aspect of that. I wouldn't reduce it to that. There's some of the things that are there. Um, others would say we're rational, rationality. Um, and that may be part of it, but I wouldn't reduce it to that either. All right, let's go to number six. Anonymous question. Uh, recently, I've been worrying a lot about whether I'm obedient enough, repentant enough, or believing enough to be a real Christian. How can I biblically deal with this struggle? Um, so there's a real challenge here because let's, let's take super extremes. There are people over here who are truly believing in and following Jesus. None of them are perfect. So if they think, am I believing enough? Am I obeying enough? Am I repenting enough? All of them may doubt their own salvation unjustifiably because they're genuine believers who are doing all they Basically, they're real believers. They demonstrate real faith by the way they live their lives. They just aren't perfect. And so that lack of perfection becomes evidence to them that they're not saved. And so it sends them into psychological turmoil. Then on the other extreme, we have, and you know people, right? You like this. We have people who say they're Christians. Um, they claim to follow Jesus. There seems to be some sort of intellectual belief in Christ, but their life is so in rebellion to God and so selfish and so carnal. And they are very little aware of this that you go, boy, I want you to ask the question, am I really believing? Am I really, dude, does my life look like I'm a genuine follower of Jesus? So these are the two extremes, but the, but the world is full of people that are kind of like across the spectrum here. They're all around. And so what happens is people, you know, pastors get asked a question like this and they think of this group of people and they want to encourage people or they think of this group of people and they want to warn people. And then I get asked this question and I go, I don't know where you are on the spectrum, so I'll say this. 
look at the examples of believers in scripture who were who were genuine right like paul you know peter or or just random people you read about in scripture they're genuine um and ask yourself if 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 your situation looks similar to that now you're not like paul in that you're not called to be an apostle to the gentiles you're not gifted with those same gifts and stuff like that but you just want to ask if you're genuine and 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 we we can't remove the um you know what what scripture says in philippians it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you both to will and do according to his good pleasure and if that's true that god is working in me then i should see that on this spectrum i'm at least closer to this side than i am to that side so that as i assess myself and i examine but but you have to throw out the idea of perfection you will never perfectly repent. You will never perfectly obey. And you will never perfectly believe. You can struggle with, with ongoing temptations and even failures in your life and still be a genuine Christian. What I would want you to do is look at your life and ask this one question. Does my life genuinely look different today than it would if I was not a Christian? Or, it, or am I living a life that's pretty much the same as it would be whether or not I was Christian? That might be one insight that kind of helps you see where you're at on that spectrum. Um, but if your standard's perfection, you're going you're gonna to suffer from paranoia and not realize that grace is there for you. Let me speak to, to the listeners, because most, I imagine, the majority of the people who would bother to watch long theological videos and Bible, Bible thinker content, you know, are going to be more on this spectrum because you're just more likely to be caring about those things. So be more on the, on the spectrum of believers who have issues, which, which I am too, okay? I am too. So if that's you, I don't know that it's it's possible to remind you too often that God's mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. This this verse blows me away. It comes in the book in, in the book of Lamentations, where after Jeremiah prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem because of their horrible, horrible sins, and they don't care and they keep failing and rebelling and rebelling. And then Lamentations is written after the destruction happens horrific war and horror that they experience just being brought as low as you can possibly be brought as a human being indescribably painful as a result of their own sin then lamentations is written and in there are these incredible high hopeful grace filled verses in the midst of all the sorrow and the grief and one of them is that his mercies are new every morning if it wasn't for god's mercies we would be destroyed his mercies they're i like the term the term it uses new every morning that is i didn't exhaust god's mercy with the sin i committed yesterday his mercies today are new that's important the foundation of every christian's relationship with god is actual grace is forgiveness not performance and this is why perfection as a test of your faith is is a bad test because it's going to be grace that sustains you not your obedience so so if you're on that side you know you want to see a changed life you want to you want to be growing in these things and hopefully you are growing over the years in some years you may feel like you haven't really grown much at all maybe it's time to reassess your lifestyle and decisions you're making all that so are you obedient enough you'll never be obedient enough are you repentant enough i don't know what that means you'll never be perfectly repentant in every way are you believing enough i I don't i i know that jesus tells the tells the the man who has doubts he says, I believe, yet help my unbelief, and Jesus accepts that belief. So don't say, just say, am I obedient, repentant of believing um, genuinely, not am I doing them enough? 
maybe that's a better question. All right, no to go to question number seven. Uh, we have no more questions. All 20 are in today. This is the last stream of the year. I'm not going to be doing another live stream until January 6th, I believe it is, which we'll be doing the next Q&A on. Um, okay, so Jay Towles says, hey, Pastor Mike, in Luke 9, verses 44 through 45, why would Jesus tell his disciples this only to have the meaning concealed? Why tell them if he wasn't if it wasn't meant for them to understand. Well, let's look at the passage and see if we can find some clues as to the answer to why Jesus would say the following. Luke 9, 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that it might not they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You know, it's just a side note. It's interesting to me um, that the disciples were intimidated by Jesus. And this is something I, you, you never see in the Jesus films and stuff like that, that we, 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 we see. Well, maybe you never, I don't see them. I haven't watched them all. I haven't watched The Chosen, for instance. I don't know. But the the disciples were like legit intimidated by Jesus at times, not in a bad way, in a, in a way where it's sobering. Like when you encounter the, the God of all creation who is going around and healing and you're not, you're confused about things, but you know, he's real, but you're, but he's not what you expected. It's understandable that things are, things were intimidating to them. Anyways, about the question, I think the answer is, um, twofold. One, the disciples didn't understand it then, but they would understand it later. And there's plenty Jesus taught them. In fact, probably the majority of what Jesus taught them, they didn't really fully grasp until a later time when the fullness of the gospel was revealed after the death and resurrection of Christ. And then finally the lights started going on. And then they probably, I imagine they sat there, the disciples would sit around and talk to each other and be like, man, remember when he said this? I think he meant this. He was talking about, you know, there was probably the lights going on where they had repeated the words of Jesus, but not fully understood them. Um, so one was for them, they, you know, Jesus delivers them teachings that later on they will, they will um, understand. Um, connected this is the idea that Jesus predicts his own death. This is important for later on because they were so despondent, so confused. When they saw the resurrection of Jesus, it, they remember he predicted and did what he said was going to happen. He voluntarily went forward to his death. He wasn't just martyred. He was offered as a sacrifice. This is a big deal with Jesus. He wasn't just killed as a martyr. He was sacrificed. He offered himself as an actual sacrifice for our sins. And that's huge. That's that's a big, important thing. Another element is that these words are for you and me. Um, this is teaching us theology about Jesus, right? Let it sink deep into your words. This is central, a central teaching about Jesus. He is the son of man, right? So we have his humanity. Um, also the prophetic connection to things like Daniel um, that talks about the son of man who's like ruling over the nations, you know, prophetically speaking. And he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. And look at the humanity of that verse. The son of man, the ultimate representative of all mankind, he's about to deliver it into the hands of men. He's going to do what? Die. He's going to rise. It's all there theologically to speak of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Um, I think that's deeply important. And there's a lesson in the fact that they didn't understand it. There's a lesson for us because for me and you to realize there's things even in scripture now you don't understand. One day you probably will. There's things in your life you don't understand. It's okay. Uh, it doesn't feel good. You're not happy about it. There's things in the world you, you don't understand. 
we shouldn't assume we'll understand everything with a quick Google search, even even theology stuff or Christian stuff or life stuff, and say, yeah, I'm going to be in the dark on certain issues. I'm just going to trust the Lord. I'm just going to trust the Lord and his word. Number eight, let's go to Raising the Dead, who says, should we practice Matthew 10, 8 today, or has the command to heal, cast out demons, and raise the dead ceased? Let's look at Matthew 10 and, and, and examine how we kind of analyze this question. So by itself, if you just read Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, you've received without paying, give without pay. Um, when you take a verse like this and you pull it, let's be honest, out of context, and you just ask a question, should we apply, should we do it or do we stop doing it? It assumes a bunch of things about the verse. Like it assumes that it's about you. It assumes that it was an ongoing command to all Christians. And it assumes that to not continue obeying this verse on a regular basis for all Christians is actually your word, your, your phrase was, um, ceased. It means it's ceased. So let me, I'm trying to think how to bring us into the context of this passage. Let's back up and see how much are we going to have to do if we're going to take it that way. If we're going to read Matthew 10 as though this is giving us modern instructions to current Christians directly and not something that happened to others that we're to learn from, but rather a direct command, right? Then let's apply this, all of it to us today, to be fair with scripture. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. So what if I was to ask you, like, theoretically, has this ceased? Are we to actually, are we allowed to go to Gentiles now and talk to Samaritans and go to their towns like that? I mean, are you, or are you saying it's it ceased? Is that what you're saying? But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So every Christian on the planet is only supposed to evangelize Jews now and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Okay, we're going to apply that like as simplistically. We got to apply it all. Guess what? You can't get paid. Okay, connection's back. Sorry about that, y'all. This is, this is, I don't know what it is. It's the way it is. So, um, yeah, you, you can't take any food with you. You can't take any extra clothes with you. Whatever town or village you enter, find who's worthy, stay there till you depart. You guys get the idea. Like you could just keep reading all of this and say, hey, maybe this wasn't meant to be this universal command for all Christians for all time. And what some have done, some are very, very focused on uh, sign miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And they pull verses like this. Not all people who are really focused on miracles do this, but some do. They pull verses completely out of context. And yeah, what is Jesus doing? He sends out the 12 apostles Let's back up a little bit and look at sort of like the 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 the, the ministry of Jesus, right? During his ministry, he he goes with the apostles, and teaches them a bunch, shows them a bunch, heals heals people, and does a bunch of teachings, teaching probably a lot of the same things in different synagogues and places. Then at one point, he sends the twelve out; they're going to be the ones doing it. So they go out and to teach them lessons of dependence upon God. He won't let them take tunics. He won't let them take gold. He will. They just have to depend on the generosity of strangers, and they have to go out, and they're going to be the ones doing these great miracles. Then later on, they get back with Jesus and, you know, they travel with him more. He then sends them out and he tells them, now don't go without a tunic, take a tunic and, you know, prepare yourself, have, have a sword with you. This was a season, a, a mission season where they had to learn to trust, to teach them lessons. It was not a command to all Christians. The apostles were uniquely 
skilled, uh, I should, skilled is the wrong word, gifted at healing, raising the dead, cleansing people of those things because it was connected directly to the initial proclamation and establishment of the gospel. That, I think, would be a better way to understand that verse. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. This is question number nine. Spencer Gage says, why is Abraham commended for his faith when he tries to conceive a son through his slave Hagar? Isn't that an indication that he had a moment where he lacked faith? Man, I'm trying to think of, forgive me for, for um, man, not knowing the exact, the exact verse you're thinking of. Um, I, w I wish you had included in your question. Don't feel bad about it, okay? You never know for sure what you need to include. But where specifically is Abraham commended for his faith because he tried to have a son through Hagar? Like, it, I don't know of a verse that says that off the top of my head. That Now, he's commended for faith, right? In Hebrews, Abraham's commended for faith. In other places, Romans 5, he's the example of faith to the believers. But specifically, where does Scripture say, Ah, Abraham's faith, for example... Him trying to have a son through Hagar. Is that the faith? Like, if anything, he seems to be rebuked for this in Scripture. Um, you know, Abraham says to God, let 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 uh, let Hagar's son be the son of the promise. And God's like, no, Sarah will bear you a son. That doesn't seem like this was a great moment of faith on his part. He should have waited and trusted. And the whole thing with Hagar causes lots of problems for everybody. So it doesn't seem like it was a shining example of any kind of faith for him. Abraham is an example of faith. It doesn't mean every single thing Abraham ever did was an example of faith. Him as a whole is an example of faith because of a few specific things. It, Genesis says Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. This is huge. This is justification by faith. That's in the Old Testament. In literally the first book of the Bible, we have this, some call Protestant doctrine of justification by faith in Genesis. Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Um, that's amazing. Then we have Abraham who left his homeland. He left his family even. And he journeys to a land that he doesn't have any land, uh, any actual property there. And he does that by faith. He, Abraham takes his son Isaac and he's willing to offer him by faith that God will raise him from the dead. That's what Abraham believed at the time. These are examples of Abraham's faith. I don't think Hagar is a great example of Abraham's faith. Abraham lying to the king of Egypt about his wife, that is also not an example of his faith. So we, we can separate those things and have wisdom about that, I think. Um, let's go to question number 10. My chaos life says, do you think that dead people can hear us and see what's happening in our world? So I, I, I just want to acknowledge first that we've got kind of a small amount to go on here. Um, like, we're sort of throwing out guesses on certain of these issues, at least, okay, from my perspective. Maybe someone has studied this more and they can think of real specific, clear scriptures that, that say things that they go, oh yeah, that's definitely applicable today. Um, so the, some of the only verses I can think of that come to, to, to the top of my mind on this that might weigh into it is um, when Saul goes to the Midianite um, the 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 witch the witch uh, is she Midianite I'm trying to remember anyway she's at uh, um, indoor is it anyway he goes and he gets counsel from her and she raises Samuel up and this is a shock to Saul and interestingly Samuel seems to know what's going on okay Samuel knows what's been going on even though Samuel has already died 
Okay, that might be evidence that that someone who has died is able to observe things that are going on. But Samuel is also a prophet of God. And prophets of God often just know stuff that's going on without having observed it. They simply know by revelation. And he's definitely operating as a prophet prophetically to speak to to Saul at that time. And so I wouldn't lean on that personally because I go, no, this is a real unique situation. We shouldn't derive normalcy from this wild moment where God's clearly using him in a very prophetic rebuke to Saul. So I wouldn't lean on that. Um, others would be like the scripture talks about those who were in Sheol in the grave. And he's like, well, they, they observe nothing. They don't know what's going on. It actually specifically says that about them, implying that those who've died don't know. Um, um, and maybe that's the case, or maybe that's talking about the way those people appear from the human perspective. And I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'd want to sit down and spend some more time on this. But the scripture doesn't seem to give us tons of information. So, Alternately, we do have scripture where God clearly forbids people from trying to reach out and contact the dead, especially in the Old Testament. He's like, don't do this. Don't do this. This is evil. Even what what Saul did when he tried to reach out and contact Samuel was rebuked and was evil and was wrong and shouldn't have done it. And the woman was shocked. Like, I'm of the opinion that when people try to contact the dead, they're generally contacting demons. And that's the person they're actually connecting with, if if anybody, or it's just a fraud, probably a lot of the time. and so I think that that seems consistent with scripture and there's, it's forbidden. So that's significant that even the attempt to do so is forbidden. But then you have the idea of, yeah, but I, I miss my loved ones and I want to, I want them to hear me. I want to talk to them. I want them to know, but scripture seems to forbid us from doing that very thing and to just wait on the Lord. Uh, when, when Paul had an opportunity in first Thessalonians, I think it is where he's, he's like, Hey, I don't want you to mourn like those who mourn no hope about those who've gone before us. Right? You know, what, what Paul does say about them is that when Christ returns, they will rise first and then we will meet them together. And those who are alive and remain will meet them together in the Lord. Meaning that our hope regarding those who've died is a future re-meeting and reconnection that's a, some distant time in the future. This would have been a great time for Paul to say, and you can talk to them now. Like that would have been a perfect time because he's talking about those who mourn and grief over the ones they've lost. And he just points them to some distant time in the future where, where we're all resurrected. So that seems to push against the idea that there's this communication ability with those who, who've passed. So it's forbidden in the Old Testament to do the kind of thing people are tra- talking about today. It's doesn't seem, it's not taught anywhere that it can happen. And it doesn't, the only time that it does happen that we're aware of with Saul, it's rebuked. Um, and it seems like a special case, prophetically. So I'm suggesting I, I don't know if they can watch what's going on. Um, the only other thing that comes to mind right now is Revelation, where the voice of the martyrs cries out. And they cry out, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood upon those on the earth who, you know, who've killed us, basically. Um, and some might say, see, they're observing what's going on on the earth. But that's not actually observation, to my knowledge, because they're talking about what happened while they were alive, not what happened after right? Avenge our blood is a statement about what happened while they were alive, not something that they were observing and watching afterwards. So you catch that? So that also doesn't seem to add to that. Um, we might derive comfort from this, but it leads to strange things and it leads to people, um, effectively praying to, to effectively praying to those who are deceased. Um, and they'll use other terminologies to describe that prayer, but it's very similar to prayer functionally. It functions as prayer. And um, 
and, it, and that seems problematic and the church has fallen into various errors because of it so yeah so I, I strongly lean away from it is what I'm saying but there's not a lot of data to go on she's moonlight has a question how can I tell when the Holy Spirit is talking to me ever since hearing a sermon about a pastor's conviction to spend more time with God I think I'm hearing God to a- God ask for more time when I close my Bible huh Well, th- th- this is there's the challenge here. On one side, we've got people who, um, and, and I've known many people like this who are who seem to be so sensitive to what they think the Holy Spirit's leading them to do. But if you know them personally and you watch them, sometimes you're watching them do some sort of strange things, you know. And you go, I don't think you're really sensitive to the Spirit so much as you can't tell whether God's talking to you and you assume it is. And so you just start doing random things that you think of. And that can create unstable people on the inside. Their lives are unstable. Externally, their lives are potentially um, misleading to others where they're like, I'm gonna, come on, family, we're going here. And they're taking their family and kids with them and they're not being led by the Lord. That could be a problem. And that can cause a lot of harm to others. On the other side, you've got those who feel like the only safe thing to do is say, yeah, God doesn't speak to you that way. Um, the phrase I've heard people say is, if you want to hear God speak, open your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. And I'm like, well, that's true. But does that mean that's the only way that God speaks to us? There's like no other way God would speak to me. I don't see any biblical warrant for suggesting God wouldn't just speak to you or or put something on your heart. Um, so here's here's my only advice on this. I recognize those two sides and I think they're real. And I, I want to be somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm open to the leading of the Lord. I'm open to God speaking to me, but I'm not presumptuous and I don't put random thoughts. I don't assign them to the Holy Spirit, especially random paranoid thoughts. I don't just assign them to the Holy Spirit. I, 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 I don't do that. So for me personally, so what I would suggest is this. If you are fairly certain God is speaking to you, then move forward with that thing, right? Unless it seems unbiblical, you might check with others if it's a big issue, like a big consequence. Check with other Christians who are spiritual and say, hey, what do you think of this? But um, but if you think, you know, God's speaking to you, move forward with that thing. And then in the in the time you, times you do that, where you're fairly confident God was speaking to you, when you look back, does it seem like you were right or wrong? You might learn that you are just delusional about those issues in some, in some ways, mis- misunderstanding God's voice. If you are uncertain, if you're, you know, you don't think it's God, you think it's you, obviously, you know what to do there. But let's say you're unsure. Maybe this is the Lord, maybe it's not. Um, Then my tendency is to assign it to not. When God speaks to people in scripture, it's generally pretty clear to them that he's speaking. And I'm just going to trust that God can do that. He knows my waffling psychology as a human being, that I'm too weak-minded as a human, and probably all of you are too, this is just our our state as humans, too weak-minded to sit here and sift through every random thought I have thinking, is that the Lord? Is that the Lord? Is that the Lord? So I just trust that God can reveal things clearly to me if he wants to. And when I'm unsure, I assume it's not the Lord. This is not an affront to him. This is entirely about me recognizing my own psychology. But, but if you have an idea that's in that I'm unsure category, but it's a nice idea, it's a good idea, it's a godly idea, you can still do it. You just don't have to assign it to the Lord. So as you open your Bible and you read and then you're closing it, and you think, I kind of want to spend more time with God. Is that the Lord? Is God telling me to? I don't know if it is. Well, let me just ask this. Do I have the time? Does it seem like a good idea? 
And if you answer those things with yes, then why not just do it more? You don't have to assign that to God. You can just be a positive thing and pray that God would reveal clearly to you when he is speaking to you and check your track record because that's where you'll find out if you're, um, I think, hearing from him or um, maybe just misinterpreting things. You know, sometimes we we want to hear from the Lord so much that it that it can cloud our judgment on those things. Let's go to number 12. Uh, Live to sing 410 says, My husband and I have struggled to have a baby, and I have had Psalm 127 verse 3 on my mind. Makes me feel like there's something I need to do and lack of faith. What is the context of the reward? Uh, well, let me go to that scripture first. Psalm 127 verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So this is a verse that's speaking very positively of children. Um, let, me, let me back up and just read. We can read the whole psalm. It's very short. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is, a, it is vain that you rise up early and go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So this is, this is kind of an encouraging thing because the first two verses, I think, are saying basically, or one of the applications would be, um, hey, there's, there's a certain kind of striving that is unhealthy where we're, we push too hard to try to make things happen that ultimately you should just do your best pray it's blessed and jesus takes care of the rest <laughs> you should just let that happen and re- and take it go to sleep and rest you did your job and now you wait and see um verse three then says behold children are a heritage from the lord the fruit of the womb a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth like because you can you can send them out to accomplish powerful things Blessed is the man who fills this quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So purely just speaking about the blessedness of having kids. But what you're asking seems very different. You said, it makes me feel like there's something I need to do and lack faith. Which you said in the context of the reward. You're seeing this verse 3, that word reward, as perhaps communicating to you like, you'll have kids if you can earn it. God will reward you with kids. And I don't think that that was the context of the verse. I don't think the verse was saying, um, hey, everybody, if you perform certain things, then you will get a child. And if we look at the um, the people in scripture who waited and waited and waited on children, who God did actually bless with kids, they were, they were barren and then they were blessed. We don't see them getting blessed with kids because of some like, good work they perform where they earn it and then they are rewarded so the word reward doesn't always mean payment for like you you know like you you worked for it and you got this you you ran the race and you earned the reward it doesn't always mean that it just could mean something very positive and very wonderful not necessarily like a quid quo quid pro quo is that right where you do it you you do this thing for God and God rewards you with kids. So I, I don't think so. And, and my my gut would tell me this, and I hope this applies to you. Um, I hope this I hope this applies to your situation that I'm 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 getting this right. Is that lacking, you know, that time you spend not having a baby, it, it's inevitable the longer it goes on, the more you start reaching for explanations. And you might be looking at things in your life thinking, 
maybe if I just did this or did that, or maybe if this thing was right in my life, or if I was more holy over here, that then I would be blessed with kids. And it's understandable to feel that way because you're looking for explanations. But if you look around your life and you see all the people who have lousy lives and plenty of kids, it's probably not true that this is something that's being caused directly by some sort of lack of doing a good work or something like that. Continue praying and seeking the Lord and doing what you can to have kids. And I pray God blesses you and opens your womb. But I, I don't think this is a fruitful path for you to walk down unless God reveals to you specific things in your life to change. And even then, I don't know that that comes with a promise that you'll have a baby if you change those things. As much as I want to say, oh yeah, I mean, that'd be like the easiest baby program, right? I'll just, oh, I just read the Bible more and I'll have a kid. <laughs> I wish that this was the case. Sadly, this is a really, really hard thing you're going through and uh, my heart goes out to you. All right, let's look at question number 13. Uh, Prince Joe King says, heartbreakingly, I have betrayed Christ for things worth far less than 30 pieces of silver. What is fundamentally different between Judas and me? Why can I still be saved, but he couldn't? Um, Joe, I, I think Judas could have been saved if he had turned back to Christ. I think that, that his suicide is what, what closed the book. I think his suicide closed the book. I think that Judas would have still been saved. How do I, why would I think this? He did such a horrible thing. This is, when you look at Judas and you think I identify with Judas, therefore maybe I couldn't be saved. Yet it was never God that rejected Judas. It was Judas that rejected God and then killed himself. But when you look at Judas, you need to look at Paul the apostle and know that Paul the apostle after the death and resurrection of Christ, persecuted and attacked and went after the church and, and, and even approved of the murder and helped assisted in the murder of Stephen, the, you know, the, the deacon, Stephen, this guy, Paul was chosen by God as an example of grace. God picked, and he says so in his epistles, he's like, Hey, God picked me as an example of grace because I was formerly a persecutor of the church. And I, I wanted to destroy Jesus. In fact, Jesus even says it this way when he confronts Paul on, in the, on the road to Damascus. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul was deliberately personally persecuting Jesus as far as God is concerned by persecuting these believers. It was direct persecution of Jesus. And God saves him and makes him an example of grace so that someone like you could look at Paul and go, I might see Judas as an example of someone God rejected because of his, his sin ultimately. Judas is someone who rejected God. That's why he stayed in his sin um, and then killed himself. Paul is someone who rejected God, sinned greatly against Christ, was a blasphemer and persecutor, and God picked him just to assure my heart that he could still forgive me. I think you need to look at Paul. Uh, number 14, Gracie Spinelli says, given the way Romans 8.28 is worded, I'm wondering, are all people called according to his purpose or only those of us who love him? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so let's look at the verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What purpose is specifically? Because um, it's not just... What I don't think is... I don't think we have human humans put into two categories. Those who love God and have some kind of purpose in their lives. And those who don't love God and, there's, and God has no purpose for them. 
I don't think that it's purpose versus no purpose. I think it's specific purpose versus people who who don't have that specific purpose. And and then you're going to need to hold. In fact, I'll I'll link below my Romans. I have a few videos in Romans, Romans eight, um, and Romans nine, where I talk about stuff related to this and Calvinism. But I'll I'll link the one in Romans eight where I talk about Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine thirty about predestination and all that. I'll link that below because I know that's a question that people will want to have answered. But it's not what you're asking about, so I don't want to focus on it. Um, so about Calvinism, all that will be linked below. Um, but I think the purpose here is defined in verse 29. It's a specific purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The purpose in verse 28 is that salvation purpose to forgive you of your sins, to justify you, to then... Um, conform you to the image of Christ. That's the purpose. Now, ultimately, if you reject Jesus, you reject this purpose too. And you didn't respond to God's calling. And again, Calvinists who are punching the air, I will have a link below to deal with all that, those questions that you might have in the video I have dealing with this uh, as I was teaching through Romans a few years back. So yeah, are all people called according to God's purpose? Well, I mean, they're called, God has some purpose for their lives. But are all people going to experience the, the 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 specific purpose? Do they all have the specific purpose of being conformed to the image of Christ? Not in the fullness, right? Like God would desire that for them, I believe, but they've rejected it, and so they're not they're not in this. They're not in the category of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, specifically the purpose of being conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah, I know. I I don't like leaving so many hanging issues. Um, but it's not really part of your question. So again, I'll link that video down below for those who want to get into that. You just consider the things that I have to share about that. I'll try to answer. I think I answer most of your questions that you might have right now about that. All right. Question number 15. Paul Christian Christensen. Well, your, your name is a tongue twister. Um, Paul Christian Christensen uh, from Norway. What does Jesus mean in Revelation 3.16 when he says, it's better to be hot or cold than lukewarm? Love you, Mike. Oh, thanks, Paul. I'd say I love you too, but I mean, I care about you, but I, I don't actually know you, Paul. That's the weird thing about online. But um, but I hope this is a blessing for you, and I will seek to give you some thoughts on this. Revelation 3.16, verse uh, many of us have heard, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So some interpret this to me. Okay, well, let's just say this. Everybody agrees on what hot is. Most people pretty much agree on what lukewarm is. No, they don't really. Okay, but everybody agrees on what hot is. So the question is, what is lukewarm and what is cold? So hot would be like that Christian who's on fire for the Lord. This is it by way of analogy. Okay, hot's kind of like that. Like you're, you're, there's vigor, there's life, there's heat coming from your witness of Christ and your obedience to Jesus. Um, but what's cold and what's lukewarm? Is lukewarm a Christian who's just kind of like sitting on the bench they're saved but they're just not doing much for the lord and they're and is cold unsaved is god saying i'd rather you be non-christian going to hell not covered by the blood of christ than being a christian who's just kind of sitting on the bench and not really accomplishing much for your life um i don't think so and a lot of people would say yeah that seems pretty weird then why does god even save lukewarm christians in fact in fact it suggests maybe he doesn't he spits them out of his mouth he's like i'll, I'll make you cold 
Um, okay, so there's another interpretation that I think is seems better. And um, it's basically saying hot and cold are both good things. Uh, since the analogy here is about drinking or eating something, like let's say that you take um, soup, there's hot soup and cold soup, and you drink or eat it, but then there's also um, lukewarm. And lukewarm is things are actually gross. Like here I have coffee that is quickly approaching the lukewarm stage, and I'd be happy to drink it iced, cold, or to drink it hot. Both of those are positive things. Lukewarm is bad. Now, the thing about lukewarm is that lukewarm is room temperature, and this could be an analogy of telling them, you guys are be becoming acclimated to the world. And this church in particular was doing this. He's like, hey, you know, you say, oh, I've prospered. I don't need anything. You don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They're being ungodly. They're being ungodly. And so he wants them to repent and get focused on him. So lukewarm doesn't appear. Okay, if, here's a help, helpful interpretive rule. Lukewarm is how God's describing Laodicea. Laodicea was not a church that was simply on the fence or on the bench. They were a church that had all kinds of sinful things going on and didn't care. They were a worldly, ungodly church. They had adjusted to the temperature of the world and become lukewarm. They became worldly. Hot things and cold things pull away from the temperature, the ambient temperature, and they then are useful. So hot and cold might be the same thing. Hot and cold in verse 16 could be Christians who are just very different than the world. And hot and cold are effectively the same thing. They're not trying to giving you different things. Um, others would say, uh, in addition to this, that, and I don't know if this is true. I haven't checked into it, but I've heard people say it, that uh, in Laodicea, there were like hot springs that, that by the time they got to Laodicea, they were, they were lukewarm. You know, and if you waited further down, they got cold and further up, they were hopping in Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Um, I don't know if that's true. That's an interesting historical thing. If it is true, I can't remember um, if I've really checked into proving that that's the case. So yeah, I, I think hot and cold are both good and lukewarm is worldly. And worldly is not a Christian on on who's just not as active doing things for God, but it's rather a worldly person. And they could be, they're in danger of being spit out. Yeah, there'd be my understanding. Number 16. Mr. Ghost says, how do you feel about the Bible conspiracy that Cain is still alive somehow and is wandering the earth to this day? Uh, Mr. Ghost, I find this to be ridiculous, uh, absolutely silly, um, and totally unbiblical. Uh, the, the mark on Cain is not immortality. And people like this kind of stuff, like they get a kick out of it, like, ooh, it's interesting to them. But it does an injustice to scripture and to Christian theology because it, it promotes these weird, wild things that are not biblical and that ultimately distra distract and detract from what scripture is actually teaching. When, when Cain committed his sin and then God confronted him in it and he's like, now I'm going to be killed. They're going to revenge kill me. And he goes, I'll put a mark on you. So anyone who kills you, right, they'll be, they will suffer too. And that mark was to stop revenge killings against Cain. That was it. It wasn't, it wasn't immortality. It wasn't something beyond that. The whole idea of, of Genesis is they died, they died, they died, they died. So here you have an immortal man. Like, here's the weird theology aspect. Let's suppose Cain gets this immortality by sinning. So he sins. He's given immortality. He's the one man in Genesis who doesn't die. And he got there through being wicked and murdering. Like, this is definitely a bad theological message, and it's not something biblical. 
lots of weird stuff people teach about Cain because um, people are weird. That's my, my answer on that. Uh, number 17, Michaela Ryan says, does shaking the dust off your feet in Matthew 10, 14 ever apply to family? Or are we to always endure witnessing to family despite continual rejection? Okay, so here we are actually, check it out. We're in the same passage we were in earlier today. And so if you're skipping around, you might want to go back to the question about um, Matthew 10, 8 that, we, that I answered earlier. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. But again, this is just to the 12. Okay, so shaking the dust off your feet is something they did and we can learn from it, but it's not something that you are specifically called to do. Um, some Jehovah's Witnesses used to do this. They would go to the door and I don't know if they still do this. I've, I haven't seen them do this. Um, maybe they still do. Maybe former JWs who, who watch, you could tell us in the comments if this is a, a practice that's ongoing. After knocking on a door and maybe after dealing with a particularly stubborn person, they would kick the dust off their feet as a sign against them. Now, the nature of this sign, while I don't think it's something we're supposed to literally do today, the nature of it is they're actually going town to town. The disciples go to a new town. They preach for a while. Let's suppose that nobody, nobody there wants to listen to the gospel. The whole town ultimately rejects them. So then they shake the dust off their feet is not a way of saying, I hate you or a curse. It's a way of saying, I'm not responsible for your town. The very dust of your town, I, I, I it doesn't cling to me because I'm not responsible for the decisions you've made because you've rejected the message I've brought. You see, that's a, that's a flavor people often don't understand, I think. I'm not responsible for you because I warned you and you didn't listen. Now, can I apply this to relationships? Yeah, I think so. I think it's fair to say, oh, I've talked and talked and shared with family and family and, and they reject and reject and reject. Then it's you don't have to always share in every meeting and every conversation. Now, maybe God would lead you to do that. Maybe you have a conviction that you should do that for some reason. But I think there's also a place of saying, I don't want to spend my entire life unsuccessfully witnessing to the same individuals. I think it's okay for me to witness to other people and to spend that time looking for someone who might actually listen. This is a principle Jesus did. It's a principle the apostles did. And it's a principle we often don't do, especially when we focus on relationship evangelism, where I have a 30 year long relationship and I'm just slowly trying to whittle away at a person. And I could have spent a lot of time sharing with a whole lot of people. And some of them might even, I might have a church of, of, of disciples now in the time I spent trying to witness to one person who just was only rejecting it. It's okay to move on is the message. Do you have to actually kick the dust off your feet? Not literally, no. Um, but there can be, but here this is a wisdom principle. It's like, hey, is, is now a good time? Is now a good time? It's going to be hard for other people to answer that because they don't know all the all the moving pieces. They don't see the, the scenario that you see in detail. So I won't try to answer that for other people. Let's go to question 18. 10th Avenue Fan 94 says, someone's response to Matthew 5, 513 how can the salt lose its saltiness? If it wasn't salty, it wouldn't be salt. That's the verse. I understand what Jesus is saying here, but does this mean his analogy was flawed? Um, man, you know, there's something I heard about this not long ago, and it escapes me right now. But the, I think, I think what you're getting at here um, is the idea that, hey, salt can't lose its saltiness. There's a flaw in the analogy there. I, I think you're trying to say that as I read your question, it just didn't quite totally, it wasn't clear to me. Um, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
Um, now, there's there's different, you know, I know there's different interpretations of this passage, and I think what would illumine us is understanding first century uses of salt. And salt in our current culture is, mo- at least we're aware of, most of us aren't food prep people, and we're not, de- and maybe you're dealing with roads, so you're actually dealing with icy roads where you do salt the earth, you actually put salt on the ground, so maybe it's only good to be trampled underfoot, and you want lower grade salt and all that. Um I'm not sure how pure the salt was um, uh, in the first century with their practices. Um, how often were they dealing with salt that was perhaps uh, less than pure? And sometimes maybe they were dealing with salt that was degraded in purity to the point where they would only use it to, to throw it on the ground. In which case, there is no problem with this analogy. So if you look at Jesus, uh, a first century statement, save Jesus from the apostles or something, and you think, well, that seems kind of strange to me. Um, there's a good chance there's just a cultural thing you're not aware of, and I don't know the full answer there, but there's a couple possibilities. Uh, we use salt for a lot today, we just don't know about it, because personally you only use salt when you're salting your food. But salt actually has a lot of other functions, um, but it, it can no longer be good for, maybe when it's reached a certain level of purity, it can no longer be good for anything except to be tossed out and trampled underfoot. And so he's saying, hey, be pure. Um, all right, we'll go to question 19. Gregory Mock says, what are some good steps to giving advice to fellow Christians without coming across as condescending and patronizing? Oh, um, I wonder how good I am at that. (laughs) Um, I hope so. Um, but, uh, one of the things I found to be helpful is questions. So for me personally, one of the things I've found to be at least make me less offensive is, is ask, ask, can you ask it in a question where they're the one answering it instead of you giving the answer? Um, that can be useful. Another tip, a good step would be um, to, to realize that you being right and them being wrong doesn't make you better. So Galatians, it actually warns us about this. Um, let's go to that verse. This is something that we should think about all the time whenever we're bringing correction to somebody i think it's galatians 6 yeah brothers if anyone's caught in any transgression and now that's a sin they're actually committing and you're you're talking about someone who's just wrong about something um just advice so this is less extreme but still you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness so here's a thought you're about to tell somebody give them advice and you and you just ask yourself is there a gentle way to do this? And that may change the way you approach the issue. But also do this test. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You might not just come off as condescending and patronizing. You might actually be condescending and patronizing. And it's easy to do this because you are correcting an error in others. Now, don't take full ownership for how people respond to you. If someone rejects your advice or your counsel, it's not always because you did something wrong. It's just a human thing that we don't like being told we're wrong. And it's especially an American thing. There's In other cultures, from what I gather, in lots of other cultures, they're much more willing to just tell people like, hey, yeah, you're wrong about that. But in America, maybe others like maybe England is like this too. It tends to be like a very awkward moment. Oh, you think I was wrong about something? I remember having a conversation where I was super gentle with this girl. 
And she was, she said something that was really, really theologically bad and wrong and dangerous. And I was like, oh, I think she'll be really easily offended. So I, I super gently, I just asked her questions. I was like, what do you think about this? What do you think about? And she was like, agree with me all the way, all the way around. And then at the very end, after like five minutes of this long way around to get her to see the problem with what she had said, she goes, wait, are you saying I was wrong? <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I just, I thought, and I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> And I said, well, I, I thought, you know, th that you were wrong about what you said. And she, like, wouldn't talk to me, you know, for a while after that was really upset with me. That was her fault, not mine, okay? In that scenario, not that I haven't hurt people and wronged people on my own, and it was my fault. But there's an example of a situation where it was, it was, it was the person. They would have received correction until realizing, wait, is this correction? I'm mad at you now. Um, you, you might be able to get around that, but good luck. <laughs> Good luck. So yeah, um, ask questions, consider yourself and ask yourself, is there a gentler way to do this or way to say this? And maybe those are a few steps that would help you. Uh, let's go to question 20. Brittany Howard says, how can we reconcile James 1, which says God cannot be tempted with evil, with the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4? Thank you and may God bless you. Um, so in James 1, and I'll show you what I think is the difference here. Um, and we, we have to recognize this, that words can be used like temptation, but context give us more information about what we mean with that word. This is the way we, we all understand English works this way. So in James 1, it tells us to be careful not to accuse God of, of tempting us. You know, let no one say, James 1.13, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Um, when it says he cannot, God can't be tempted with evil. I think what it specifically seems to be saying is God doesn't have evil desires within himself. There's no evil desire in God. And so when an evil thing, okay, let's say there's a wallet on the ground and there's $500 in it and you pick up the wallet and you open it up, you can be tempted to steal that $500 because there's a part of you that's just actually selfish and more concerned about you than others. And you may have to fight that temptation, you know, but God would not be desiring to take the money because there's just not that evil in him. He doesn't have that within him, so he's not tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. He might put them through a, t a testing scenario. Oh, I meant to put that on your screen. There you go. He might put them through a testing situation, but not a temptation where he's actually tempting them to do something bad. Uh, now, what's interesting about Jesus in Matthew is that he is tempted so what's going on there? Um, Matthew 4, and I have a video on the temptation of Jesus. I'll link that below as well for people to follow up on. I get into a lot more detail on in what sense was Jesus tempted. So he's led by, led by the spirit of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the, the devil's trying to get him to do something wrong. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, you know, it's written and, and you, you go through all these different temptations that Satan offers. Um, so there's this, there's a sense in which Jesus could be tempted here. He's tempted to eat, to, to be hungry. He wants food, but yet the idea of wrongly doing something evil in order to accomplish that desire of the good desire of wanting food in the bad context of when he's supposed to be fasting and, and, and to do a bad thing to get it, that itself ultimately had no power over him, he rejects it. 
So he's tempted, but he's not tempted with internal desires for evil. There's temptation that's there that has to do with human desires for things that are not evil out of in the wrong context, which would become evil, but there's no evil actually in him. I know this feels like it can get a little complicated, but that's why I'm going to point you to my video where I deal with this. Jesus's temptation in the gospel of Mark, when I did a verse by verse study, I actually spent a lot of time on just this. Like, how is Jesus tempted? How does that make sense? And we talk about the theology behind that. So I'll link that video down below as well, along with that Calvinist related video that I did on Romans 8, 28 that I mentioned earlier. And we have a bonus question coming in from Corazon Prodigo. Um, this is not actually a question. I just wanted to say hi and thank you for your ministry. It has helped a lot to study the Bible. God bless you. Okay, thanks. Well, hi, Corazon. <laughs> Probably did not pronounce that right. Corazon. I don't know. For me, I only ever hear that when I hear like, uh, you know, Spanish music. And then I hear the word Corazon. Um, even like worship music. It's in there a lot. So... Um, yeah, thanks guys. Thanks. This has been uh, this has been 2022. I will see you next year. That's right. I, I'll have a few videos coming up over the next you know two weeks. I'll have like some videos popping up, real short ones, clips and things like that, but not anything live and nothing fresh, brand new, really. Just stuff that's sort of repurposed from other videos I've done. And I will see you on January 6th for the next Q and A. So God bless you, and guide you, and uh, let's pray. Um, thank you, Lord, for this last year that we've made it through, um, the highs and lows and all the stuff that's gone on. We pray for your guidance and blessings in the year to come, that you would guide and direct us now as we have kind of the end of the, end of the year to think and reflect back on what's happened and think about what's coming next, that we would be given direction, vision, focus, and clarity for what you would have us do with our lives in this coming year, not to just seek self-improvement, January 1st, self-improvement, um, but beyond that, to seek faithfulness to Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.